Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Wendy Lyon, and I'm part of the teaching team. Welcome to West Campus. We're so glad you're here today. I am thrilled to be here to teach Galatians. You might remember last summer at Christ Chapel, we had a sermon series called Picnicking Through Philippians. When my son saw me uh, learning Galatians and studying Galatians, getting ready for this, and he said, Mom, I've got a great title for you. And he was so excited, and he said, Galloping Through Galatians. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, if you can figure out how to tie a horse into the law and the promise, I'll do it. That would be great. A few months ago, my husband came home from work. He had just been at a leadership training conference. And he handed me an article that he received there. And the title of this article was, Is it okay to yell at your employees? And he said, hey, what do you think of this? And I said, no way. Especially if they're women, they're emotional and they cry. And they'll be sad and they're sensitive. It would create a horrible work environment. No, you can't yell at your employees. Then I read the article. And it listed very successful people, uh, men and women that you would recognize, that all yelled at their employees, and they interviewed them. And they said, we yell at our employees because we are passionate about our organization. We believe in the mission statement of our organization. And when we yell at an employee, we have high expectations of them, and we expect them to rise to those expectations and feel that they're capable of rising to those expectations. Now, this article wasn't taking sides, but it did make an interesting point. I wasn't persuaded either way, but it was interesting to think about, and I thought about Paul. Chapter 1 and 2 of Galatians, if you thought he was upset in chapter 1 and 2, chapter 3, he is angry, and you can tell by the tone of his words. Paul was passionate about the truth being known that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He had high expectations of the Galatians, knowing they had received the Holy Spirit. And they knew better to buy into a different version of truth. He was a lover of truth. And he confronts the Galatians for believing a lie. And this lie was, uh, came up by the Judaizers who made a new version of the gospel that faith plus the law equaled salvation. This new version of truth placed the Galatians back into the curse of the law and offered no hope for the Gentiles. Their influence of the Galatians proved to pay off. They drifted away from truth. They were pulled into confusion. They were uh, confused about the Holy Spirit They were confused about Christ's redeeming work on the cross. They were confused about their faith. Truth is never confusing. They were pulled far from the clarity of truth into darkness, and they were in a foggy place. Have you ever been in a foggy place? Has your faith ever been foggy? I've had times in my life where my faith was foggy, and I'm so grateful for bold women who's loved me back to truth. And some of those women are here in, in Women in the Word. That's what Paul is doing. His harsh words reflect a passionate anger. His motivation is that the churches would return to the truth they once heard. 
In chapter 2, we saw last week that Paul was establishing his authority. We also learned that justification is being made righteous by faith alone, believing in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Paul goes deeper. And he answers the question, why? Why is it true that we are saved by faith alone? Paul gives four arguments to support that truth, and he dismantles the lie that faith plus works in the law equals salvation. So let's begin reading chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit of works by law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul lets the Galatians know he's about to ask some questions because he, enter, he opens with, let me ask you only this. Before presenting his arguments, he cleverly uses questions to prepare them to receive information. They have personal experience that testifies to the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And Paul needs to jog their memory and get them to think. How did you receive the Spirit? This question forces the Galatians to remember if you have the Spirit, how did you receive it? And their answer would have to be by believing a major event just happened. And we see in verse 1 that it says, It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Uh, this was most likely close to 15 years ago that Christ was crucified at the time. And posted for public reading means that much of the news that was circulated around Galatia was posted in the center of the city for all to read. But Paul had been to Galatia on his first missionary journey and told them about the truth of the gospel. Upon hearing and believing the truth, they received salvation. They didn't sacrifice anything. They didn't obey any law. The day they believed, the Holy Spirit was received immediately. It was a free gift. They had been justified, and they had also been sanctified. Verse 2 uses the word perfected for sanctification. What is sanctification? It's being set apart for the use of its intended designer. It's the process of work in us to become more like Christ, our creator, our designer. We cannot become like Christ on our own efforts, but with the Holy Spirit as a guide and teacher, draws us to what agrees with the things of God. Sanctification is a mark of, of faith. And it's proof of the Holy Spirit inside of us. If you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior, you too have experienced receiving the Holy Spirit. Just like the Galatians, this is on your outline. You also have received the gift of the Holy Spirit when you heard and believed the truth of the gospel. Third, Paul asks about your suffering. Haven't you suffered? 
He warned in Acts last spring when we studied Acts um, that this new this faith um, would bring suffering. It would rock the world. Once despised Gentiles were considered equal to the Jews. As recipients of faith, the Judaizers' loss of power and the shift in social status would certainly bring opposition. Okay, what about miracles? That's proof of the Holy Spirit. The first churches experienced um, miracles as a result of the Holy Spirit, and God performed miracles through Paul. Paul and Barnabas had healed a crippled man in Lystra, and Lystra is a city in Galatia, so many of them, some of them may have witnessed this healing. They had for sure heard about it from Paul. Paul was able to heal because of the power of the Holy Spirit, proof of the Holy Spirit in his life. If Paul could get the Galatians to answer these questions about the Holy Spirit, they would listen to the rest of his arguments. So let's look at Galatians 3.6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is of those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Justification by faith alone was prophesied to Abraham. That's another truth. Some versions of your Bible might say, uh, consider Abraham. In verse 7, it says, um, understand then. These are thinking words. He wants to get them to think. They've been foolish. He wants to bring them to wisdom. Abraham's life was something the Jews and Gentiles were familiar with. So Paul says, let's look back on what we know. We know that God considered Abraham righteous by faith. On your verse sheet, we see in Genesis 15, 4, where God is speaking directly to Abraham. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. Second, we also learn that God made a covenant with Abraham that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. Jews and Gentiles, everyone. Most of us in here are Gentiles. We read this blessing in our homework. You read it in your homework. I also have it on your verse sheet, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless all those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Lastly, Paul says the scriptures prophesy that these promises would be fulfilled through Abraham's line. The promise is not... um, The promise is that we will be saved by grace through faith alone. But it will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who is the heir. So when we say the seed, the heir, it's talking about Jesus Christ. So salvation could only come by a sinless man in the flesh, which means he would be born of someone in this world. God chose Abraham, a man of faith, chose his line, Abraham was the great-grandfather of Judah. You might remember this uh, genealogy. Um, Judah, um, 
David came from Judah, and we know Jesus came from David. The truth was not only spoken to Abraham, but God gave us a visual of what was to come. Look at Genesis 22:2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now let's read John 3:16. This is God and his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a beautiful picture of the promise that was to come. This was God's plan all along for you and me. And on your outline, our salvation was a part of God's divine plan. Righteousness by faith alone has always been the plan. And Paul is repeating Habakkuk. Habakkuk, by the way, lived under the law and said this. And this is on your verse sheet in Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Having reminded them the promise spoken to Abraham, Paul keeps moving forward, addressing the law part of the equation that was added to faith. So let's read Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit of faith. You had to be perfect to keep the law, and since no one is perfect, mankind could never be considered righteous under the law. Mankind is full of sin, Helpless to ever attain righteousness through obedience to the law. Therefore, they were under a curse, forever separated from a personal relationship with God. Because we are unrighteous. Paul explained, even under the law, there's hope. There's hope for us. Unable to perfectly keep the law, the only way to escape that curse was having another bear that curse for you. Take on the punishment. Take on my punishment, your punishment. A sin substitute was required, and there's only one who qualified for this task. Jesus Christ kept the whole law. He was without sin. He was a perfect, unblemished lamb and was the only acceptable sin sacrifice for us. On your outline, Jesus died as a voluntary substitute for us. He voluntarily took our punishment by dying in our place to release us from the slavery of the law, this curse. Let's look at John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have, I have received from my Father. 
In Mark 10:45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. God looks on us through his blameless Son so that we can have a personal relationship with him because he loves us. This was a very difficult for transition for the Judaizers to make, but it was so important because it was important that they understand that his death was freedom for them as well. The law portion of the, of the equation carried with it a curse. And by adding it to faith, the Judaizers were leading the Gentiles back into slavery, back um, under this curse. And that is why Paul is so um, passionate, passionate about dismantling this lie. Paul ends his argument with the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Jews and Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was not received at uh, the death of Christ, it was, um, but after Christ was resurrected. In those days, crucifixion was the death penalty for many, but only Christ was raised by his Father, by God. God's resurrecting his Son proved that he was an acceptable sacrifice for us, an acceptable substitute for us. If Christ remained dead and buried in the grave, we would still be slaves to our sin? Living as slaves, but our faith is based on a resurrected Savior who is alive today and lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And we have the hope that we get to spend eternal life with him. Okay, having established their faith was prophesied and they had been redeemed from the curse of the law, Paul goes to clear up more confusion Okay, did you notice Paul has stopped answering, asking questions? Have you ever had a best friend? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your mom. Someone who knows you so well that they just answer your questions before you even say them. And you think, how'd they, how'd they do that? They know what I'm thinking. The Galatians were confused about the purpose of the law and its relationship to the promise. And the Holy Spirit was speaking through Paul. And knew what the Galatians were thinking. And Paul knew how to address those answers before they even asked. When I first read this, I wanted to tell the Galatians, Hey, I need to know too, what's the relationship between the law and the promise? How does that work together? Paul, leaving no stone unturned, clears up this confusion with his next truth. Let's read Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward. Okay, Um, What he's talking about is the time between the promise was given and the law. There were 430 years between the promise and the law. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the promise of the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The promise is superior to the law. The Judaizers placed great importance on the law um, because it came later. So their counter-argument would have been because um, the law came after the promise, the law must be important, more important than the promise. Paul argues that the promise God gave is a promise, and it was, gave, it was given by God. Therefore, it is superior. God always keeps his promises. Just because the law came later does not make the promise void. The promise is also superior to the law because of how it was given. The law was delivered through angels. When it talks about an intermediary, um, those are angels. God sent angels to talk to Moses. Moses was an intermediary for the Israelites. And we know this because in Acts 7, Stephen, do you remember Stephen when we studied Acts? He was a martyr. He preached the gospel, and Paul was around when Stephen was teaching. And this is what Stephen said. It's on your verse sheet, Acts 7, 37, and 38. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Angels delivered the law, just as those who lived under the law could not approach the throne of God without a priest. The promise, on the other hand, that all are saved by faith, was given to God directly, um, given by God, excuse me, directly to Abraham. He, the man of faith. And because of Christ's death on the cross, we too have direct access to God. I just talked to a young mom last month, and um, she did not grow up with the Bible in her home. She never knew what it was like to have a personal relationship with Christ. And the only way she was allowed to talk to God was through a representative at their church. She had to call him or talk to him, um, and he would talk to God for her. Today, she has a relationship with Christ, and she says, I love that I can just talk to God. I can pray to him anytime, and I've taught my children the same thing. And when we go to see my parents, and we sit around the dinner table, and we pray, they're baffled because my kids are praying to God, directly to God. When my own children are angry or they're hurt and they don't want to talk to me, I know when they lay in their bed at night, they can talk to God who can give them everything they need. Wisdom, comfort, he goes with them wherever they go because they have direct access to God because of their faith. 1 Peter 3.12 on your verse sheet says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. The promise also gives life and freedom. The law offered no hope because no one could fully keep the law. 
The promise, however, would come through a seed. A seed um, was an heir, and it's Jesus Christ. In God's timing, he would fulfill that promise and send his son, Jesus. This gift of grace through faith in Jesus is now available for all. All, but there is only one way to receive it. Dave and I lived in Connecticut for five years when he was stationed in the Navy. And when we were looking for a church, we found, we visited a church. I can't remember the name of it. But we were by far the youngest by at least 50 years. Um, We were a young couple. And uh, we listened to the sermon. And the sermon was all about God and his love. And we love one another. And God is loving. And then we closed in prayer. And he prayed, whether you're a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Christian, and he named off so many religions, there are many paths to heaven. And Dave and I looked at each other, and we just got our thumbs and said, we are getting out of here. But we couldn't leave. We were stuck there because the pastor wasn't done. And it gave us time to look around. And we became sad. We looked at all the people in this congregation. Many of them looked like they were going to see Jesus a lot sooner than we were. And uh, we just wanted to be bold and stand up, but we weren't. We wanted to be bold and shout, this is a lie. This is not true. There's only one way. You may all be saved through faith, but there's only one way. John 14, 6 on your verse sheet says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The promise is superior to the law because it gives life, and there's no equation. There's just one way, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, for a practical thinker, I'm a pretty practical person. When I was studying Galatians, I don't know if you were thinking this, I thought, okay, we have the promise that was given to Abraham by faith, and the promise was fulfilled, and we have this time in between that is the law. So how does that work? Why the law? Why did God give us the law? It was added to reveal sin and lead us to Christ. It was never intended to give life. Never-ending works uh, required of man under the law reveals our sinful nature. There are so many Old Testament stories about the Israelites that drift away from God over and over again. And you see the wrath of God. He has to judge sin, um, punish his people. We're just like them. When I read the Old I love reading the Old Testament because I see myself. See myself there. I see my sinful nature. It's a, remind, it's a reminder of my need for a Savior to, and to deliver me from the, the endless cycle of sin. And I, to look forward to a Redeemer. So the law leads us to Christ. Second, the law was given as a guardian to protect his people from the consequences of sin. The law is referred to in different translations. You might have guardian, teacher, it's a tutor. 
And this is something the Galatians could relate to because in really wealthy homes in Greece and Rome, a slave was considered a tutor or teacher or a guardian and was to raise these young wealthy men um, until they were adults. They were the harsh disciplinarians. And I read they were to make sure that they made it safely to school and back and to um, various locations. So I guess it must have been dangerous for wealthy young men to travel. They just protected him. It's a place of responsibility to keep them safe. And that was the purpose of the law. It was to protect the Israelites. And it was motivated by God's love for his people. A friend of mine in high school was adopted by her aunt and uncle um, because her mom and dad had died in a car accident when she was a baby. She never knew them. But they left a huge trust fund to her. And she was telling me about it, and she said, I can't tell you how much is in there. I'm not allowed to tell anybody, but it's a large sum. I can't even tell the guy I marry till after we marry. And they have to sign this contract. They're not marrying me for my money. And I thought, wow, that's a large sum of money. And she wasn't able to touch it till she was 21. But her parents were good parents. They trained her well. They gave her wisdom on how to choose a man that would treat her well. They were good parents. They told her how to make wise choices. This was a waiting period until she could receive this inheritance, until this promise was given to to her. At the time, the Israelites received the law. Surrounding pagan nations were influencing the Israelites, and it was real easy for them to drift um, far away from truth into idol worship. Because God is righteous, he had to deal with their sin. And again, we see over and over, God used famine, plague. He even used these uh, godless nations to wage war on the Israelites to discipline them. The law was a good thing. It kept the Israelites close to God, away from godless nations that would pull them away from truth. Once we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit of God living inside us to teach us and guide us, and the tutoring of the law is no longer needed. We have a guide that goes with us everywhere, living inside us. I think by now, the Galatians probably need a little intermission. I would have said, go get a Dr. Pepper, go get some peanuts, break into some small groups, and just kind of mull all this information over, okay? And then come back and and get refreshed. But Paul is so passionate, he just keeps moving forward. with His main idea in Galatians 3.26. Let's look at that. 25, excuse me. But now faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. In Rome, a slave was a subject to his master. Women were regarded um, as less than men. And there was a huge chasm between Jews and Gentiles. Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. In the Old Testament law, they were uh, separated by circumcision. Christ broke all those barriers. 
They could, all could receive the inheritance of eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This was a personal decision that you make when you accept him as your savior. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, you are sanctified, a new person, aligned with the truth, with those who have made the same decision, and you are a member now of a new family. On your outline, by faith, you are a member of the family of God. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the foundation of our faith. If Gentiles and Jews could live by these truths, they would be unified as a body of believers. And their church would grow. And as we say here at Christ Chapel, or as Ted say, they would become bigger and stronger and tougher. Because they're aligned with the truth in God's word that all are saved by faith alone. We too are capable of listening to lies taking them in and being lured into some other version of truth. And unfortunately, these false messages are everywhere today. When we're not aligned with truth, by truth by our words or our actions, we confuse an already confused world. We want the world to see truth in us. We've probably seen friends and relatives stray from truth, and maybe some of those people are really close to you and it breaks your heart, and that should bother us. We can be bold and defend truth just like Paul. Paul's bold defense of the truth teaches us to first know what is true. Paul knew truth. He was prepared to defend truth and recognize lies an author wrote, I love this quote, his word is the only way we know what life truly is. It's the only standard by which all other standards must be compared. God's word is always our standard. There's a term for being able to recognize truth from lies, and that's called discernment. I think this is a huge problem in our culture today. Um, and our culture is capitalizing on this. Hebrews 5.14 on your verse sheet says, But solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment are trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Training includes attending women in the Word. You're all training. Good job. Reading and studying the word, learning scripture, applying it, living out that truth in your life. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Once we know truth, we're responsible for it. Knowing always precedes discernment. And we will not recognize truth in our culture if we first do not have the knowledge of truth in our head and in our hearts. It was out of great love that Paul chose to be bold and love those back to truth. Paul also teaches us to be bold in speaking truth. 
Remember last week uh, when we talked about, um, we studied, Peter was eating with the Jews and Gentiles, and he was eating all the same food because we didn't have to um, pay attention to the dietary laws anymore that were under the law. And when the Jews arrived, Peter quickly switched tables, and Paul confronts him. And uh, Paul opposed him because his actions were confusing. They didn't align with truth. And it said he led Jews astray, even Barnabas. We can easily dismiss ourselves from this job thinking, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not the person to stand up for truth. I'm scared. This boldness is not just for pastors. God calls us to be bold. How do we do that? We follow Paul's example and start conversations by asking questions to get them to think. I have a, um, I know a sweet gal, sweet friend of mine. Um, She's not in our church community. She doesn't live around here. Um, But she's a believer. And she's a leader in an organization for youth. And the purpose of this organization is to share this, what we're studying today. That by grace, through faith alone, um, you may come to know Jesus Christ. It's the salvation message. That's what this organization does. One day, um, we're friends on Facebook, and one day on her Facebook profile page, now if you don't know what a Facebook profile picture is, it's something that identifies yourself. So if you decide to post a picture or a saying, um, my picture would come up and you know it's from me. That's what identifies, my, um, identifies me. It's kind of like an ID. Well, um, this was about a year and a half ago, maybe two years. Um, her profile picture page came up with, it was red, with a white equal sign in the middle of it. That standed for, I'm supporting gay marriage. So I wrote her a private message, and it was just between me and her. And I said, hey, I noticed your um, new profile picture. Are you still a leader in this organization? That's all I said. And she responded, yes. My relative is a homosexual, and I'm supporting him. And I responded, I know several people who live this lifestyle, and I love them. I love them very much. But I stand by what the Bible says, and I want my kids to be aligned with the truth in God's word and what he says on this topic. Silence, no response for at least 30 minutes. And I thought, oh, I've lost a friend. What am I going to do? I was so nervous. Then the picture popped back up. The equal sign was down. A brand new picture had popped up. And she wrote back, I did not consider, I didn't think about my position in this organization when posting this. Thank you for reminding me. It's hard to be bold. It's not easy for me to be bold. But God gives us the courage to be bold. She thought about her picture and how it might be confusing to those kids and to people around her she was sharing the gospel with. What does this have to do with our faith once we remove one truth? It's a slippery slope. We just keep removing truth and we drift far from the gospel. It confuses people, those that are new in the faith, and it leads them to a foggy place. Bold doesn't mean harsh or judgmental. I don't think we can be like Paul with our friends or relative and say, you foolish friend, who bewitched you? I don't think that's going to go over very well. 
Uh, but Paul learned to write to say this because he had a long-standing relationship with the Galatians. Also, we can trust that Paul was led completely by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was, knew exactly what to tell the Galatians, and so he was right in line. His motivation was to protect truth, and we can too. We can be like Paul when we love others back to truth. Our motivation for standing up for truth would be out of, should be out of genuine love and care for their hearts to be filled with truth. We don't want lies to be buried in the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a part of the church, and that's our job, to point others to truth. There's a risk involved that those relationships may end or that they're damaged, but true love speaks true things. You might be the person that God uses to bring them back to truth. Look at your verse sheet in John, 1 John 4, 18. <clears throat> there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Paul teaches us to know truth, the whole truth, all of the truth, to be all in, and to speak boldly in truth. I'll close with Hebrews 2.1. I love this verse. It's at the bottom of your outline. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for loving us so much, for sending your son. I love the song that says, my chains are gone, I've been set free. I thank you for setting us free and that we get to live forever with you, Lord. Show us areas of our life where we need to be more bold and give us the courage and the words that speak truth and love. Thank you for this Bible study. I pray you'd bless our week. In your most precious name I pray, amen.